All right, we are back. And I don't know, dear listener, whether you've noticed the fact that uh, in various national magazines, I, I think The Week and The Economist, and, and maybe the and New Yorker as well, Google has taken out three pages of advertising. One of the pages says, we keep more Americans safe online than anyone else. To which I would add, yeah, maybe. Second page says, sophisticated cyber attacks aimed at high-profile individuals are on the rise. Our advanced protection program was built to protect people from highly targeted attacks. Well, let's hope. In much tinier letters before those, uh, those big block print uh, items, we have digital attacks against political campaigns, elected officials, human rights organizations, and journalists are on the rise. Our advanced protection program, Google's strongest account security, offering safeguards these users against today's evolving threats. Well, yeah. The third page of this says, cyber attacks are a growing threat to election security. Yes, something we've been talking about on Radio Parallax for the past two decades. Glad to see they're finally on board. This piece says the Campaign Security Project was built to train candidates and campaigns in online safety ahead of the 2022 midterms, to which I say hallelujah. On that particular page, the lower case letters say targeted online attacks on political campaigns have increased in recent years, putting sensitive information at risk. Hey, you think? The Campaign Security Project was developed in partnership with organizations like Veterans Campaigns to train thousands of candidates and campaigns across the political spectrum on the best security practices to keep them safe. And of course, you can explore how Google is keeping more Americans safe online at safety.google. And not to be left out of the bandwagon here, Facebook has jumped in. They have a paid advertisement, in this case only a one-pager that says Facebook is taking action to keep its platform safe. We spent $16 billion to enhance safety and security over the past six years. That's enough to build seven pro stadiums. And the Photoshop picture then shows seven pro stadiums. Now, the idea that data is not necessarily safe, that has been entrusted to the big tech corporations, has been a recurring theme on this program. We've decided to talk about it till we're blue in the face, frankly because it has so changed the world in which we live. We referred on this program some weeks back to an excellent Frontline special, which is now eight years old. It's entitled The United States of Secrets. We highly recommend it, dear listener, if you've never checked it out. It runs three hours in length and is packed with really, really critical information. The point is, through various programs, the NSA and to some degree the CIA and I suppose FBI, are able to monitor the communications of Americans is something that um, people are unaware of and that the agencies don't want to keep us informed about. When Edward Snowden took vast amounts of data out of the NSA and tried to put it in the public domain, things changed a bit. He showed that we'd been lied to again and again about what the capabilities of these agencies were and what they were doing. And it's sad to note in the documentary from 2014 that we can certainly point the finger at Dick Cheney and the Bush administration's efforts to illegally wiretap Americans. But it's sad to note that although candidate Barack Obama 
promised he was going to end that sort of stuff to the best of his ability. When he became president, he decided he liked having all this extra data at his fingertips. On my out-of-state trip last week, I took with me Dark Mirror by Barton Gelman. The subheadline is Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State. It is a very, very good book. I think, Mr. Miller, we should reach out to Barton Gelman. Definitely. He is clearly the glue that holds together that Frontline special from 2014. And with elections coming up and the midterms and concerns by no less than Google and Facebook that um, there could be some issues regarding election security, we should dive back into this topic a little bit. We should note that uh, very recently, in the last week or two, Russia has granted citizenship to Edward Snowden. Snowden has been stuck in Russia since 2013 and has long denied collaborating with Russian intelligence, which I'm inclined to believe him on that. It appears that to save himself, Snowden turned over his materials to reporters and then tried to flee to Ecuador. He didn't make it to Ecuador because when he got out of Hong Kong on a flight that was supposed to go to Moscow, Havana, Caracas, and Quito, the U.S. government canceled his passport when he got to Russia, leaving him stranded. He's not in Russia because he fled to Russia. He's in Russia because he's stuck in Russia. I want to quote from Barton Gelman's Dark Mirror near the end of the book in his final chapter, talking about the mind of Edward Snowden. Said Gelman, in retrospect, Snowden's tactical frame of mind could produce startling results. In 2019, amid special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election, I went looking for something unrelated in my notes of an interview with Snowden in 2013. I came across an exchange that had not especially struck me at the time. Snowden had been riffing on the danger that NSA surveillance could be misused for political ends. A different kind of leaker, he said, with a different kind of agenda, could have exposed communications in a devastating electoral attack. What if I'd been a real political partisan who hated the Democrats and Obama and collected every Democratic official's emails between now and the election coming up on the midterm and leaked them all out as the new October surprise? Then, he said, referring to the 2014 midterms, think about the implications that has for the way our system of governance works, the way our elections work. This is the harm. That is the risk that these centers of gravity represent, that these databases represent. Said Gelman, this conversation took place more than two years before Russia's GRU hacked into email accounts belonging to Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman and the Democratic National Committee. Doxing, which is short for document dumping, was not a novel concept at the time. Hackers invented it as a tactic of revenge in the 1990s. Its use as a high-impact political tool, however, was yet to come. At the time Snowden spoke, doxing was most often discussed as a low-stakes prank. In 2013, for example, a person or persons unknown had created a website, The Secret Files, that published personal information, phone numbers, addresses, and the like for Michelle Obama, Ashton Kutcher, Beyonce, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, and other celebrities. The devastating hack of the Sony Corporation by North Korea and other episodes in what Bruce Schneider called the rise of political doxing did not begin until about a year later. 
Snowden saw the potential before it happened. His mind just naturally turned in that direction. Now, we've had great talks on this program about the subject of Russiagate, including the Hillary Clinton emails, talking to Stephen J. Harper, adjunct professor of law at Northwestern University, and celebrated author Craig Unger, whose book American Compromat delved into this at great length. We don't think on this program, we, we on this program do not think that there's a heck of a lot of doubt about the issue of how much Donald Trump collaborated with Vladimir Putin. I mean, my God, look at all of the data. Nevertheless, I have people whose opinions I respect that tend to doubt that this took place. One of my pals, who's in that category, went to go listen to a talk by Bill Binney, wherein Binney explained that the Hillary Clinton emails were actually leaked by a Democratic National Committee person who was disgruntled. It wasn't a Russian hack at all. More on that in a minute. Binney is a character who is mentioned in the book Dark Mirror and features in the documentary United States of Secrets. He was a mathematical cryptographer. He quit the NSA when he learned of the Stellar Wind Project and got falsely accused of passing information about it to the New York Times. Noted Gelman, Binney had quit because spying on Americans without a warrant was a red line for him, whether or not ostensibly lawful under presidential orders. There's a great explanation in the documentary of how it is that they cooked up a way that this would look legal by avoiding the Attorney General's signature and substituting the White House counsel. This did not fool uh, a lot of intelligence professionals. When Bart Gelman spoke to Benny about uh, how some of this stuff worked, Benny was the first surprised that some of the data that, uh, that Gelman had, courtesy of Snowden. Said Gelman, Benny confirmed to me the techniques he devised did not confine themselves to individual targets. They computed social graphs of every caller in a gargantuan data set. He said, the software does build a profile on everybody in the database, whether or not the analysts look at it. If they did choose to look, they could track individuals in fine detail by extracting a timeline from the index of individual calls. That information, in turn, was enriched by metadata. By the way, an interesting aspect which emerged in the book Dark Mirror was that since the NSA is pretty much collecting everything that's out there, scooping it all up through a splitter that takes the photons that are being stored by the companies and sending off an extra copy to the NSA, that they now have the ability to go back and look at the data. They may not have been monitoring you in 2017, but if they want to go back and look at who you called and who called you and what you did back in 2017, they have the capability. Benny and several other people were concerned about what was going on illegally. All of these people who quit in protest wound up getting then raided by the FBI, who pretty much took all of their electronic data uh, out of the house and examined it. One of them, Tom Drake, I think deserves special mention because he had decided to raise his questions with superiors and got ignored, and at some point he went to the head of the NSA or higher up in the NSA, which was considered very bad form. And this brought, you know, the lightning bolt down upon him. He was then relieved of all responsibilities and pretty much given an office where he could show up and work and sit down and have nothing to do. When the FBI raided his fellow skeptics at the NSA, oddly, he was left out at first. Six months later, the FBI came in, took all of Drake's 
materials, and he had admitted to leaking. I don't know if he admitted to it at that point, but he had done some leaking to the Baltimore Sun, and he pointed out he scrupulously avoided leaking any classified materials. Sure enough, when the FBI came in, they scooped up some of these materials, including what he leaked, and it, indeed, it was unclassified. But wouldn't you know it, they decided to then retroactively classify it and charge him with leaking classified documents. And while charges were eventually dropped, he was facing 34 years in prison for passing along or having illegal possession of classified documents. And to fight the charges against him, he pretty much got bankrupted. May we take a moment to contrast this with what was found at Mar-a-Lago, where our former president named Donald J. Trump decided he would just take with him national documents that he felt were, were his to, to control. Mr. Millen points out, because I've not been following this story as closely as I might, that uh, some of the folders that the FBI picked up apparently were empty now. They were labeled top secret and, and probably beyond, I would say, but certainly at least top secret and were now missing. Radio Parallax cannot confirm that they are now in the possession of the Kremlin. But we've mentioned before, and don't mind mentioning again, that since Donald Trump was extremely uninterested in intelligence briefings when he was president, we can't understand why he would suddenly develop an interest in such materials, unless, of course, he saw their monetary value to certain people or governments. Perhaps to use as a threat to avoid prosecution. There, there's an allegation in the case of Edward Snowden that he has a dead man file out there of things that are really nasty, that in case something bad happens to him, these will find their way into the public domain. Glenn Greedwald apparently has uh, told some agencies that there are such documents out there. Bart Gelman is a bit skeptical, pointing out that the reason Vladimir Putin is being so bloody nice to Edward Snowden is that his, it is in his interest to do so. Snowden did not exactly make, his, make Putin's adversary or potential adversary of the United States look good. By the way, when Edward Snowden was confronted once about, uh, you know, the allegations that he'd done all these terrible things to CIA, a lot of which were not true, although it should be pointed out that apparently when he gave data to Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras and Bart Gelman, it did include in it photographs of actual agents and things like that that could have gotten people killed. It was the reporters that decided not to put that stuff out there. When Snowden was asked, do you think there's any value in a clandestine service? Do you think it serves us as a country? He replied, I do, actually, and I want to be clear that I think they're super valuable. I think they're good. I don't want to tear down the NSA or the CIA. I think the work they do is, by and large, very valuable. The things I take issue with are the specific programs used in specific ways, particularly the mass surveillance authorities, particularly the deception of the public as opposed to the deception of our adversaries. Governor refers to a phone call that Snowden took from Daniel Ellsberg where Ellsberg pointed out to him that if you're charged under the Espionage Act of 1917, there is no successful defense. I'll have more to say about that in a minute. But back to Bill Binney and his assertion that the DNC emails that were so damaging to Hillary Clinton and probably cost her the presidency were not something that were lifted by Russian agents. It was a disgruntled employee of the DNC who has never been found, by the way. I know Julian Assange made some statements about this, but I, I don't, I, I just, no one's been found, to my knowledge. And as far as the possibility that it couldn't have been the Russians, we have this from 
what Wikipedia has to say about Mr. Bill Binney. Under the headline, Russian Interference in the 2016 Election, Wikipedia said, Binney has said he voted for Trump in the 2016 presidential election, citing Hillary Clinton as a warmonger. Binney has asserted that the U.S. intelligence community assessment that Russia interfered in the 2016 presidential election is false, and that the Democratic National Committee emails were leaked by an insider instead. An investigation by Duncan Campbell later detailed how Binney had been persuaded by a pro-Kremlin disinformant that the theft of the DNC emails was an inside job and not the work of Russian agents, contrary to the findings of the U.S. intelligence community. The disinformation agent altered metadata in the files released by Guccifer 2.0, whom the U.S. intelligence community identifies as a Russian military intelligence operation, to make it appear as if the documents came from a computer in the eastern United States, not Russia. Specifically, the local time zone of the computer's system clock was changed to UTC-5, which would be the East Coast. Binney appeared on Fox News at least 10 times between September 2016 and November 2017 to promote his theory. Binney said that the intelligence community wasn't being honest here. He has been a frequent guest on RT, which is Russian television, and Fox News, and has been frequently cited on Breitbart News, ooh, our favorite. In October of 2017, Bill Binney met with CIA Director Mike Pompeo at the behest of President Trump to discuss his theory. However, on meeting Duncan Campbell and analyzing the materials again, Binney changed his position. He said there was, quote, no evidence to prove where the download slash copy was done, unquote, and that the files he had based his previous assessment were manipulated and a fabrication. Well, as far as I know, he hasn't gone out on speaking tour to, to correct things said previously. Then we have this from Wikipedia, claims of fraud in the 2020 election. After Joe Biden won the 2020 election and Donald Trump refused to concede, Binney doubted the official results and claimed his belief that there had been large-scale voter fraud. One of Binney's tweets alleged missing votes were based on a mistaken conflation between eligible voters and outdated number of registered voters and was cited in an article by Gateway Pundit which in turn was promoted by Trump. Well, my conclusion out of all this is that Bill Benny is not a credible source on how Russia was not the culprit in the Podesta leaked emails. Now, the other leading voice, as far as I can see, uh, debunking, quote-unquote, the idea that there's validity to Russiagate, was Mr. Glenn Greenwald. Now, we respect the hell out of Glenn Greenwald and what he has done, but it should be noted that when he broke this story of Edward Snowden in The Guardian, ahead of Bart Gilman in The Washington Post, and what Laura Poitras was going to put out with her documentary. He was able to do this because Laura Poitras reached out to him to let him know that she had some very important stuff. The documentary, United States of Secrets, starts out with Glenn Greenwald because, well, he is a name, and pointed out that Edward Snowden had been trying to reach him as early as December of 2012. Unfortunately, Glenn Greenwald gets a lot of emails, a lot of them from crackpots. And when somebody writes him and says, I think I have something you might be interested in, he ignored it. Snowden really kept at him and tried to get him interested and asked him how it was uh, and, and explained to him how it was he should get encryption in place so that he could send him more important stuff. 
Glenn Greenwald ignored him. Laura Poitras did not. She thought, oh my God, I have something important here, and reached out to Barton Gelman, who'd been writing about issues of the NSA for the past decade. And Gelman knows people in the intelligence community that might be able to say, well, to Poitras, that, you know, what you have here is legit. So they formed a partnership and for many months were working together. Gelman went to the Washington Post, where he'd worked previously, but was no longer employed, and said, I have a big story here you're going to want. You can imagine how that went down. I can't tell you who he is. I can't tell you where he is. I can't tell you what this is, but this is going to be big. Fortunately, people at the, at the Post decided he was trustworthy and got on board. Gilman was also advised by counsel for the Washington Post that his traveling overseas to Hong Kong was fraught with peril and that he probably shouldn't do it. For better or worse, Gilman decided not to go, and it was Glenn Greenwald that joined Laura Poitras. Now, Gelman and Greenwald have a bit of a, uh, well, not, not what you'd call the most friendly relations, I guess you'd say. Greenwald portrays Gelman as somebody who's in the mainstream media and really can't be trusted to get the story out. And while Gelman admits the mainstream media certainly has its uh, flaws, it was no less than Edward Snowden who realized that he needed to leak to something mainstream. That if his leakage was confined to people like Laura Poitras and Glenn Greenwald, it wasn't going to get the attention it deserved. And I'm sure he was right about that. Now, Glenn Greenwald really likes to promote himself as, as a lion among mice, a crusader among toadies. And in the case of Edward Snowden, he actually accused Bart Gelman of lying about his collaboration with Laura Poitras, claiming falsely that it was he, Greenwald, who'd been working with Poitras for months before she reached out to Gelman. It was really his, Greenwald's reporting, that counted. Gelman, why, on the other hand, he tried to bury the story at the Washington Post. Gelman describes how when he wrote that Glenn Greenwald first spoke to Edward Snowden on May 27, 2013, by which time he was getting the Washington Post geared up to cover the story, Glenn Greenwald threw a bit of a tantrum, and he posted this on Twitter. Bart Gelman's claims about Snowden's interactions with me, when, how, and why, are all false. Laura Poitras and I have been working with him since February, long before anyone spoke to Bart Gelman. After reading Gelman's account, I'd have to say, that isn't just a lie, it's a pretty outrageous lie. And I gotta tell you that watching, uh, watching in a debate with James Risen, who's pointed out you know, some of the details of, of Russiagate and seeing Greenwald just say, oh no, no, that's all, that's all wrong, this isn't even treason, I don't know what you're talking about. He has an ability to, to reach in, take over the conversation, and make it all about was what his claims are. I, do, I can't recommend that you dig up that, that interview on, with Risen and, and Greenwald on YouTube. But then again, if you want to, it's out there. Let me just say that in, in this correspondent's opinion, um, Glenn Greenwald's attacks on the validity of Russiagate just don't carry a whole lot of weight. Does the intelligence community mislead the public? Well, hello. <laughs> yeah, they sure do. Trump likes to claim that he's a victim of a, of a deep state plot. And although we don't, uh, we don't argue with the realities of what you might call the deep state, we would like to reassure people that our definition of it does not exactly coincide with that of Mr. Donald J. Trump. And I think at this point I want to talk about some other stuff, but before I do, I need to throw this out. The Economist reported a couple weeks back that America's Federal Trade Commission is examining Amazon's proposed takeover of iRobot, which makes the Roomba autonomous vacuum cleaner. 
Back in September, as reported by us, among others, two dozen groups, including the Electronic Frontier Foundations, wrote to the FTC claiming that Amazon's purchase would endanger competition in the market for smart devices in the home while, quote, leveraging vast troves, unquote, of consumer information. Because, folks, it turns out the Roomba collects household data along with dust, and it passes that data along. Maybe there's no harm in, in letting others know that, you know, your laundry room is right off your rumpus room. But my question would be, why does anybody need to know that? Mr. Merlin asks if the Roomba is voice activated, and at this point we do not know. But, but heck, you don't need your vacuum cleaner to be recording everything going on in your house. You've got a lot of other things, or at least some people do, that are doing that for them already. Possibly including your cell phone. More on that later. Anyway, we've got a few minutes left. I want to note as we close off today that while... In an airport recently, prepared to leave the area, I grabbed a copy of Mother Jones. The cover story was How the GOP Lost Its Mind, article by David Korn, noting it did not start and won't end with Trump. We could spend some time on David Korn's piece, but we don't have it today. I would just note that it starts out by saying we have some bad news for those who wish that today's unhinged Republican Party would just return to normal, and that would be the elephant in the room. After spending several pages going over the last 70-year history of the Republican Party, Korn closes with this paragraph. This dark side of the Republican Party has often been obfuscated, allowing Biden, Pelosi, and others to suggest that there was once a day when the GOP was an honorable entity. Yet, the history is undeniable. The party has consistently sought to exploit the worst of America and foment hate and suspicion. Trump didn't invent this malevolence. He merely turned it into the party's brand. There were several other excellent pieces in this edition of the magazine. I think I'll just quote from four items on the index page. Article by Joshua Kendall, titled A Dangerous Mind, notes that Yale psychiatrist Bandy Lee got thrown under the bus for sounding alarm about Donald Trump, but it turns out she was right. Article titled Swag and Circuses by Stephanie Mensimer, asks, how did MAGA extremists take over the GOP? And suggests we look no further than the right-wing conference circuit. Article by Noah Lanyard, titled Master and Commander, examines right-wing tech mogul Peter Thiel, who has poured millions into the Senate campaign of his protege, Blake Masters. Their goal is disrupting democracy. And finally, an article by Adam Hostchild, titled The Censor. It's an article about Woodrow Wilson and Albert Sidney Burleson, his postmaster general. The stuff that went on back during World War I, when there was some opposition in America to this idea of jumping into a European conflict, how that was dealt with, including the Espionage Act, something we could probably spend an entire show on. Since we don't have an entire show, I'm just going to pull one quote out of the article. The article notes that less than a year after the passage of the Espionage Act in 1917, Albert Sidney Burleson had deemed 44 American periodicals entirely unmailable, a total that would before long include 30 more. Burleson seized 600 copies of a pamphlet, Why Freedom Matters, not because it criticized the war, it hadn't, but because it attacked censorship. He found, quote, unmailable, unquote, no fewer than 14 pamphlets published by the National Civil Liberties Bureau, soon to become the ACLU. From such a ban, there was no appeal. The prohibited publications could only file lawsuits, none of which during Burleson's tenure succeeded. 
We want to note in bar we want to note in a bipartisan spirit that we're referring to Woodrow Wilson's act as president, a Democrat. And I guess we'll leave it to future editions of this program to talk about some of the ugly details of the Espionage Act. The thing that pops in my mind as we close was when during the debates taking place before the nomination, Clinton was asked about Edward Snowden and his revelations. And she was completely unsympathetic, saying, oh, yeah, he could have gone to the authorities and tried to correct things, but he didn't, implying that he should come back and face the music at trial. Thinking about that, a part of me just says, well, I guess Clinton got what she deserved on that. Of course, I would add, unfortunately, the rest of us did not deserve the Donald Trump presidency, and that's what we got. Ed Snowden got a hold of some secret documents, and he wasn't supposed to have them, but he did, and government's on the warpath after him. Meanwhile, down in Mar-a-Lago, we've got top secret files that are not where they're supposed to be, which is back in the National Archives that now look to be missing, and no one seems to be facing the music yet. Anyway, that about does it. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. We're pretty sure that if he is harboring some top secret documents, they're still in the folders where they're supposed to be. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax, and I fully expect in the weeks to come some especially interesting programs. We hope you'll tune in.